Hey guys, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for watching and a big thank you especially to our live viewers. I'm Lauren, this is my producer Liam. Hi. And uh, we have a lot to talk about today. First off, Harvard dismisses Harvey Weinstein's lawyer uh, from being a dean. A lot I have to say about that. Then we turn our eye to the UK where Tommy Robinson is facing court charges again, or rather the same charges a second time. Mm -hmm. Confusing story. We'll, we'll try to explain it the best we can. Uh, the UK government is also apparently struggling over defining Islamophobia. And uh, then... I have a lot to say about Game of Thrones, and at around 40 minutes into the show, we are going to be bringing in Kaylin, Roberts, Kaylin Robertson, the producer of the new documentary film, You Can't Watch This, which is out today, mm -hmm. to discuss online censorship. Should be pretty good. Yep. And uh, if you are watching this and you like the show, you support the content that we make, and you want to let us know how much you appreciate us, you can head over to blazetv.com forward slash Lauren and use the code Lauren to save money on your annual subscription. Helps us keep the lights on. And of course, uh, you know, if you can like, share, subscribe, comment, all of that helps us out a lot. If you're listening uh, on an audio platform, be sure to leave us a review, though, only if it's a five-star one. Otherwise, like, there's not really a well, point. Well, what other review would you leave? Yeah, I mean, people don't really read Irrational. those. Yeah, so, you know, use your time wisely. And, uh, yeah, shall we get into it? Um, super Chats. Oh, right. And if you are listening to, to us live, another way you can also uh, kind of help us out over here is by giving us some Super Chats. Uh, any questions you want answered, we will be taking them. But for, I don't know, sake of the sh flow of the show, we're going to be leaving all of that to the after show. And uh, so, yeah, around an hour into the show, we'll get to all of those. And we really appreciate those. They help us out a lot. Yeah, definitely. Um, but to get down to it, the something a lot of people have been really raising red flags about is the fact that Harvard has recently fired Professor Ron Sullivan and his wife, Stephanie Robinson, from their positions as co-deans of the Winthrop House. I hope I'm saying that right. Um, because Sullivan is actually representing a man accused of rape, Harvey Weinstein. Um, we have a op-ed that we're going to share with you guys from Alan Dershowitz. It appeared on, on Fox. So if we can uh, bring that up on the TriCaster. I'm just going to be reading a little bit of what Alan Dershowitz has to say about this. Uh, Many troubling arguments have been offered in defense of the decision not to renew Sullivan's role as dean of Winthrop House. The most common and dangerous is that students feel unsafe around a lawyer who is representing Weinstein. Feeling unsafe is the new mantra for the new McCarthyism. It is a total phony argument not deserving of any serious consideration. Any student who feels unsafe in the presence of two distinguished lawyers doesn't belong at a university. They should leave and not force the firing of the professor. The unsafe argument could be made against a dean who is gay, black, Muslim, Jewish, Republican, or libertarian. No credence should be given to that argument especially since the students apparently did not feel unsafe when Sullivan was representing a convicted double murderer. Um, so, I mean, in defense of Harvard, they, they didn't say that he was being fired because of his representation of Harvey Weinstein. They've kind of Correct. tried to paint it as, you know, other things. There have been absences in connection to the trial and mm. just general conduct. Yeah, I mean, I did, I did think he brought up a good point, Dershowitz, that is, at the end of the article, where, or just at the end of our quote there, where mm -hmm. he said that if he was actually um, persecuting Harvey Weinstein... Yeah, prosecuting. Yeah, prosecuting. Yeah, yeah but not persecuting. But I know that uh, too. They would, probably love yeah, that. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. But he would be celebrated. Even yeah. if he was missing class, it wouldn't matter or anything like that. So Yeah, and so we've dealt with the issue of guilt by association before on this show but what makes this so scary is that uh what's his name sullivan he's he's a lawyer right he's yeah. not just harvey weinstein's best bud going to bat for him this is actually his job he is a defense lawyer he's represented people like it's mentioned specifically murderers and um you know I guess we're just living in this new world of hysteria where people don't deserve lawyers. Uh, lawyers can be judged on their moral standing based on the clients that they take, which is really, really concerning. And the client is considered guilty before the trial has right, gone right. on, right? Obviously. Yeah. And I mean, I'm not, I'm not a fan of Harvey Weinstein, and he's of one of the cases where I think there is enough evidence where he likely, I think, will pro be prosecuted for at least something. But, you know, you're right. This... I mean, is a modern developed society where people get a fair trial. And I mean, it's literally a right to have a lawyer. Yeah. It's not yeah. a privilege. It's it's a right. You get to have someone uh, to defend you, even if you're 
you decide to plead guilty, you still deserve to have a lawyer there um, to advise you about what the repercussions of pleading guilty are, to advise you about things like possible sentencing. Like right. legal counsel is not a privilege. There's also a difference between defending a client and defending their crimes. Right. Right. There's a huge difference there. So, and I, I very much doubt um, Sullivan's defense is going to be, well, rape isn't that bad. Right. Right. That's just. That's never anyone's defense when it comes to one of these um, these trials. And so what's what I find really interesting is that even murderers and child rapists in this day and age get lawyers because, of course, um, so it's, it's not a privilege. It's actually a, a right. So what I'm confused about, I mean, are these people trying to say that someone like Harvey Weinstein, which as awful as he is, is actually worse than someone like Jeffrey Dahmer, Dahmer mm. or Ted Bundy? Uh, yeah, it seems like they're really, really... Or is, it, or is this just like the latest outrage thing for Me Too? I don't how do you know. quantify all this? I mean, yeah. yeah. I don't know how they would answer that. Or n no one gets lawyers. Just like if you're a bad person, just none of it. Just them up, I guess. Yeah. yeah, and that's actually kind of what I'm worried about now because maybe this attitude is starting with Harvey Weinstein. We've already seen people do this whole guilt by association thing. Yep. Um, what's next? Is someone like Tommy or Gavin or Alex Jones... Not yeah, going to be course, able to course. find. Although I don't think that would be unreasonable to to think in this day and age that if you know Alex Jones actually he is facing some sort of legal proceedings now. Mm. I think related to the Sandy Hook thing, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if they're already trying to vilify his lawyers. And I think a similar thing happened to Andrew England, the Daily Stormer, his oh, his yeah. legal counsel. Yeah. It's a very, very scary precedent to set. Yeah, well, the thing with, with the, the alt-right guys, like there, a lot of the stuff that happened to them with being removed from social media and these lawyer problems happened years ago now. Yeah. They were really like uh, like the canary in the coal mine in some senses, where now we start seeing all these pretty mainstream conservatives being removed from social, social media. Social media, right? yeah. So there's something to be said about that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's the matter of escalation that worries me. Um, and mm. especially like as much as you hate Harvey Weinstein, which I think it's fair to... This guy and even his wife, they're not responsible for his crimes. And I think uh, someone mentioned in, in an article I was reading that it's not just that he was taking Harvey Weinstein as a client, but he had actually volunteered to do it. But it's his job. He's a, a lawyer. Right. Um, with regards to his work as dean, though, do you think that if ha what Harvard says is true, that he was doing his job poorly, he was, I think, co-dean with his wife, if I'm not yeah. mistaken, that they, they did a survey, allegedly, and they said, the survey came back and they said the climate of the house uh, that he's dean of is, I guess, toxic. Do you think that they're justified in firing him? Well, see, this is this is where it gets hard, because if he is acting unprofessionally as dean or his wife is, I think... If you're not good at your job, you don't deserve your job. And that goes as much for a dean as, I don't know, anybody. Yep. Um, but because the students are already aware of how he's involved with the Weinstein case, I don't think it's possible for these, frankly, freshmen, probably snowflake babies um, to go into this with a level head. I really don't think it is. So, I mean, I if I were that guy, the dean, I would want to see examples or instances that students gave of him creating this toxic climate, right? Right, Because, I mean, there should be actions. Was he rude to someone? Was he hostile in some way versus, oh, I heard that you did this and I just feel unsafe in general. And actually, I mean, considering that these students are, I'm guessing, going to be the future lawyers of society, this is very, very concerning because I also don't want to live in, in a world where I mean, you go up to a lawyer and say, hey, um, can you defend me? I don't know. what, what What's the charge? He's like, oh, I'm being accused of this, but it's totally, uh oh, you're being accused of this? Wow, you must be a bad person. Never mind. Right. Yeah. That's terrifying. Um, And the thing is, this wouldn't have happened 15 years ago. I can't imagine. No, I don't think so either. No. And like, I don't think we're more anti-rape now. And that's like, now we just hate rape so much that to even be associated with a, a rape case just makes you toxic. I think we're just like more spiteful now and just more vindictive. Definitely more less, polarized yeah, right now. Less and, merciful. Yeah, yeah. Um, and this is really too bad because it, if there's any one area where I think we need some objectivity, it should be in uh, the rule of law, actually. Yeah. And we're going to be getting a little bit more to that in Tommy's case. But first, I did want to say uh, a quick word for our sponsor, FreedomWorks. Um, so heart disease, diabetes, Alzheimer's, cancer, um, these are all horrific illnesses that plague countless Americans today. I would love to say these things are rare, once in a blue moon, never going to happen. But unfortunately, they are not. They affect way too many people. Uh, fortunately, though, America's doctors and researchers are working hard around the clock to find cures for them all through research. Um, but 
government officials like HHX, HHS Secretary Alex Azer, um, if they have their way, that could potentially all change. We've mentioned this on the show before, but um, right now, there is a government-managed bureaucratic approach that, if implemented, would potentially set the U.S. back decades in medical research. This would force countless Americans to wait for treatments that may never be discovered, okay? We can't afford to let that happen, but my friends over at FreedomWorks, they, they are sounding the alarm. And if they want, if you guys want to change this and to ensure that the doctors, the researchers have the funding that they need to find cures for this, um, it's going to take everyone watching this to act. So they're asking you to go to www.freedomworks.org forward slash Lauren to tell Azer and members of Congress to fix patients and not prices. Uh, every every single person listening to this right now is going to need to act if there's going to be change. So again, that's www.freedomworks.org slash Lauren and uh, to tell Alex Azer and your elected officials to fix patients and not prices. You can go there, take action now. Again, that's www.freedomworks.org slash Lauren. All right. So moving on, Tommy is facing contempt of court charges again. Yeah. Now this was confusing to me because, you know, in, in the States, there's something called double jeopardy. I'm pretty sure we have this in the in Canada as well, where you can't be tried for the same thing twice, like the mm. same crime. If, if you were found not guilty of, let's say, murdering this one specific person, the courts can't turn around the you know, the next year or next month and say, I think we need to do this again, right? You can't do this. But um, we, we have a, an article um, excerpt from the, uh, was it The Guardian that we're going to pull up. I This was a bit hard for me to wrap my head around as someone who's not from the UK, how, could, how this could be possible. But according to them, quote, two high court judges have said fresh proceedings can be brought against Tommy Robinson for alleged contempt of court over the filming of people involved in a criminal trial. Robinson, real name Stephen Yaxi-Lennon, was jailed in May last year after he filmed people outside Leeds Crown Court and broadcast the footage on social media. The Court of Appeal quashed the contempt findings in August, and he was freed after serving two months of his 13-month sentence. The case was referred back to the Attorney General, who said in March that it was in the public interest to bring fresh proceedings against Robinson. Robinson. The full hearing will take place on 4th and 5th of July at the Old Bailey. So, I mean, yeah, this is just confusing to me how this is even maybe uh, I'm, I'm hoping that legal scholars in the UK have, you know, examined this and this is above board because to me, I'm just shocked that this is, could even be be done. Yeah, I, I have no idea about their litigation process either, but um, they they uh, I do know that this went to an initial judge and then there was a retrial. Or, or, or an appeal. Yeah. And now it's going higher than that afterwards. Yeah. So like, yeah, they're going yeah. back on that second judge's decision. Yeah. Cause right? I do remember that at first Tommy was obviously sent to prison, but then they appealed it. He got out, but it's like, they're almost overturning an appeal after he was already freed sort of thing. It's right. confusing to me personally. And keep in mind, I mean, this could never happen in the USA because he was already like let go, but also he, what he's being charged of, um, you know, for filming and broadcasting outside of a courtroom in the U.S. That's not illegal in the U.S. or Canada. Um, they don't have like media gag restrictions. I'm not sure about Canada. I'm not sure about that. I'm pretty uh, yeah. sure we can okay. film outside. But yeah, of court. But U.S. Uh, I, I've not heard of like you, you're not allowed to film outside of a building oh, yeah, that, because of yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you, yeah. this this is not something I've heard of. So it's just. Mm from someone who's not from the UK, this just boggles my mind for several reasons. Um, actually, RT released a quick video of Tommy's latest court appearance. And if you guys are on social media, you'll know that a lot of people who support him or just in general, freedom of the press, uh, were very upset about this. My charge that I'm being brought back in a politically motivated case by the Attorney General, the Theresa May's government. They sat on this case for five months. The charge I face is that I caused anxiety to the Muslim paedophiles that have been convicted of raping young girls. I'm running as a candidate for the European elections, and you know the, the date they've given me for trial, the 4th, is the first day you go into the European Union. So I'll be standing in, in a courtroom in the UK rather than walking in as an elected official. And it's unfair, we're not playing it. They are interfering in our election process. I've been removed off Twitter, removed off all social medias, and then even when social medias were set up, not by me, but by people working for my team who were highlighting our, our, our case, they were removed as well. So that's, I mean, this whole thing is, is pretty dang concerning. And also in that clip, he mentions that he's been removed off of everywhere on social media. Uh, as, as we mentioned in our last video about the film, you can't watch this. Again, we're talking to Kaylin later on in the show. 
you actually had the British government kind of pressuring YouTube workers and representative. Why are you why are you recommending Tommy Robinson's videos? Why is Tommy Robinson still on your platform? So yeah. I mean, he's literally running for office. Yeah, exactly. So this feels very very targeted. This does not feel like equal enforcement or protection under the law at all. I mean, this I don't know how people who are trying to get this yeah. case shoved forward are, are trying to justify it. But actually, I mean, you know, in the interest of fairness, we do have uh, one quote from someone named Andrew Caldicott, um, who's in involved with the trial. According to The Guardian, quote, during the hearing, Andrew Caldicott said the court should give due weight to the attorney general's assessment that fresh proceedings were in the public interest. Caldicott drew particular attention to portions of Robinson's video in which he confronted defendants, then told viewers, harass him, find him, go knock on his door, follow him, see where he works. Okay, so I just want to clarify that I've only seen portions of the footage that uh, Tommy took when he was outside of the, the courthouse filming. I didn't hear him say that. I'm yeah. I'm hoping that in court, if they're actually using that as, as evidence, they will have actual vid video footage of him saying that. Um, because, I mean, to be completely honest, I have seen many, many quotes attributed to Tommy that he frankly has just actually never said. So mm -hmm. I'm not saying he did or did not say this specifically. I'm just saying I've not seen any proof of it. Um, but in your opinion, do you think him saying that harass him, find him, go knock on his door, follow him? Do you think that changes the case? Well, uh, no, does it change the case? That's, I wouldn't think so. I mean, I don't, I don't definitely do not support yeah. that kind of behavior. I think that that would literally contradict what we just talked about in the previous piece, right? Mm -hmm. Like you, you have to have a fair trial for these people. Yeah. Well, I mean, and again, like I, I want a fair trial, but I, I don't know if at least in the US, a commentator yeah. saying harass him, find him, go knock on his door, follow him. That would be I, I wouldn't uh, approve of that. But that's not illegal. I don't know the framework that the, the UK is working under. And that's what makes this really hard. But and we also don't know that they would have a fair trial there at all, because everything is behind closed doors. There's yeah. no there's no it's there's not like here. It. Yeah. yeah, it's totally like different, we so. don't have gag orders on on trials. The only yeah. exception I think to that is when um, there's like sexual abuse cases, yeah. or if the uh, the person in question is a minor, in mm -hmm. which case I, their identity won't be leaked. But other other aspects of the case um, are so I mean, the UK is a joke, frankly, right now, and it really saddens me to say it, but there's no equal protection under the law. Someone like Tommy, who is being put through court cases, do you think the press haven't done way worse than what Tommy did to those, like, pedophile, I mean, Absolutely. alleged pedophile people? Um during his own trial, they're not facing any repercussions, right? No. They've done absolutely worse than anything Tommy has ever done in terms of interfering with justice. Yeah, not to mention how he was treated in jail too. Right. You know, you could we we interviewed him shortly after he got out of jail. And yeah, he was lost pretty shook so up much about weight. that. That yeah, was that was, well. that was I hard mean, to watch. Yeah. Not to mention like the whole point that Tommy was trying to make during filming that outside the courthouse was that the rape victims have largely been ignored because of the identity of their attackers. And so, you know, he was doing this whole thing to try to get more attention onto the victims of these crimes. Um, and it seems like the UK government is a lot more keen to prosecute him and like hold his feet to the fire than they have like any number of these grooming gangs. And so, yeah. I mean, if I were him, I would be very, very frustrated right now. I would absolutely see this as being targeted politically. I don't think that this is um, just a coincidence that, a coincidence that it comes at the same time that he is running for MEP like Saron is. Uh, he's running as an independent, though, not not part of UKIP. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, Tommy spoke about this in his interview that uh, was in You Can't Watch This, but he, he kind of talks about how he's fearing for his safety and his family's safety, not just from, you know, other activists and critics, but from the government itself. And he spoke in that interview about the very real idea of having to leave the country in the near future. And I would love to say that he's being like hyperbolic or overreacting, but I just don't think he is. This no. is very, very scary times, kind of a police state over there. And uh, in kind of similar news, also in the UK, uh, the UK government is currently struggling over defining Islamophobia. And this, this to me was a weird story. Um, because when I first see this, I'm like, why does the UK government need to define Islamophobia at all? But we'll we'll get to that. Um, according to uh, this piece, which is, uh, I think, by yeah, The Guardian again, quote, the government has been criticized for rejecting a proposed working definition of Islamophobia that has been adopted by parties including Labour, the Liberal Democrats, and the Scottish Conservatives. The definition was set out in a report published by a cross-party group of MPs in December. 
Quote, Islamophobia is rooted in racism and is a type of racism that targets expressions of Muslimness or perceived Muslimness, it says. The government said the definition needed to be given further consideration. Martin Hewitt, the chair of the National Police Chiefs Council, which represents the leaders of law enforcement in England and Wales, issued a statement expressing concern about the definition on Tuesday. He said it was too broad as currently drafted, could cause confusion for officers enforcing it, and could be used to challenge legitimate free speech on the historical or theological actions of Islamic states. Um, when something is so anti-free speech and, I guess, prohibiting to the battling of fighting Islamism, even according to UK police, mm -hmm. that's when you know it's a bad idea. No offense to UK police, but let's let's that, be that's real. That's the here. most terrifying part because it wasn't just about the definition of of Islamophobia, right? It's also about okay, how do we enforce this right, right away? Right, and I saw that the people who were kind of in favor of enforcing this this definition were saying like, well, you know, it's not in terms of legislation, just like a working definition. It's like, well, then why does it matter so much if right. it's not going to be used in some enforcement it's not measure? Legally binding or whatever it was, yeah. Right, yeah. For now. And, and right. concerning the actual um, definition itself, again, that's a. Uh, Islamophobia is rooted in racism and is a type of racism that targets expressions of Muslimness. Um, it's a very dangerous thing, I think, to conflate Islam with race. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's just inaccurate, right? Yes. Islam is not a race. You can have black Muslims, um, you know, Middle Eastern Muslims, white Muslims. They're all Muslims. It's just not a race. Mm -hmm. um, especially like, I mean, some Muslims who are reformers have actually been criticized of Islamophobia themselves, like Majid Nawaz. Yeah, so it's yeah. it's ridiculous. It's just it's just a very it has nothing. Yeah, nothing to do with race, yeah. especially in those cases. Yeah, nothing to do with race. So that's just a very ill-informed, if nothing, like if even if you like, we need a working definition of Islamophobia, even if that were the case. Yeah. Not this one, okay? Just not this one. Um, and you know, just hating perceived Muslimness. That kind of sounds like people who have problems with Muslim or Islam. It's just. They, they, they hate Muslims just because. And don't get me wrong, I've covered Islam enough on this channel to know that there are people out there who really do hate Muslims and hate Islam. Yes, hashtag all. Like, there are people out there like that, absolutely. Sure. Um, yeah. But the problem I have with this is that I find a lot of the times the people who are being labeled Islamophobic um, are merely trying to have actual hard conversations that I think need to happen about things like the differences in values between Islamic culture and Western culture. Yeah. Um, so what I think this working definition could be used is to take someone who is a critic of Islam um, and use it to brand them a racist yeah, yeah. In, in, in government. I think they make a big mistake too, because there are valid things to criticize about certain branches of Islam, right? right. I think that's a pretty reasonable thing to say. But then by, by saying that it's now racist or something like that, they're also kind of saying that Islam is a monolith, right? Yeah. That all Muslims believe in X. the problematic ideas. Yeah, yeah. which so, is just... It's not true. Which is inaccurate. Like even like, I think this is actually a pretty ignorant thing to say because not only does it conflate like Islam with a race, which is not, but it also kind of dismisses legitimate concerns about Islamic extremism that yes. oftentimes come from Muslims themselves. So... I mean, I don't blame the government for saying, no, this isn't needed. And frankly, I, I'm confused as to why the term Islamophobia is even coming in, into things in, in a government sense at all. Mm. I mean, maybe this is just me coming from the mindset of I don't believe hate speech should be a prosecutable offense. Obviously, something with which the UK government disagrees very strongly with. But I mean, you know, if, if you want to talk about someone being bigoted, I find it a lot a lot better to use actual statements that they've said and like you know this is why this is problematic and this is why this shows prejudice rather than trying to have this label to just slap on them yeah. and kind of dismiss getting to the root of why you think that in the first place because i find like i mean we're talking about tommy robinson right um he's being called an islamophobe a lot he has been for a really long time when you actually try to get down to the bottom of why people think he hates muslim individuals and tommy is always really like in our interviews with him he makes it really clear he's talking about an ideology here and you know yep. it's not it's nothing to do with race so if you you ask these people exactly like what specifically has he said that leads you to believe that he hates this entire group of people let's say based on their skin color they can't do it because it's just easier for them to slap this label on and shut down conversation that way if i were british living in the uk i would be very worried that you know this is the 
the route the government is trying to go down. Yeah, definitely. I know in that article, though, one thing that they did do is they said, okay, this is kind of like anti-Semitism. We have in the UK, we have a working definition for anti-Semitism. Do you think that this, there's any parallels to be drawn there? Um, well, I think the first, th like, I guess, distinguishing factor that I would draw there is that at least when I hear anti-Semitism brought up in, in a legal sense, it has to do with hate crimes. Mm -hmm. Right. So, I mean, if you want to say something is, is Islamophobic because it was a hate crime against Muslims. OK, I can I can buy into that. But I mean, the, they would never just say, yeah, being anti-Semitic is just like the very general sense of just like hating Junus and then trying to tie that in, for example, to criticism of Israel. Right. That yeah. I think would yeah. be going too far. So right. like, fine, if we want to have like equivalent things, then that's fine. But it, and even then, like. The, the way that the UK right now is treating Islamophobia is absolutely different than the way it's treating anti-Semitism. If you look, mm -hmm. look at J Jeremy Corbyn, right? He said some actually, I think, potentially genuinely anti-Semitic things. Right. It is very different than saying something potentially Islamophobic in the UK. And I hate that. I wish that all bigotry would be treated equally, but that's just not the case right now. So I, I kind of see also, though, anti-Semitism can be uh, called racism in some senses, right? Because don't you think that there's also a Jewish ethnos, like a people that identify as Jewish? That's, so it's inalienable in some senses, right? Yeah, I mean, in some sense, because you do you do have people who convert to Judaism, and you do have yes. like so Ethiopian, it's, it's both. yeah, it's it's both, right? You right. do have Ethiopian Jews and like Moroccan Jews, yeah. or you know Sephardic versus versus Ashkenazi. So it's like Jewish aren't a monolith racially, but it's like I mean, no. Islamophobia is definitely but, but not mean, like that. No, you know, no, so exactly. I mean, Islam is like Christianity. There's no tied, right? Race. So. I guess I just think that if your name is like Goldberg or something like that, mm -hmm. someone that's an anti-Semite doesn't care if you, you've been a Baptist for two generations or something like that. Yeah, they're still not going to like you based on a racial trait, basically. Yeah. So, so what we're saying is that the anti-Semites are anti-Semites are maybe not the best informed as to what the actual practices of Judaism are. I would, <laughs> I would agree with that. Um, so yeah, just scary times for the UK. I think, unfortunately, to all of our British listeners, viewers, we wish you the best. Good luck with that. Um, really kind of scary, scary to watch. Uh, next, our final story has to do with Game of Thrones. If you are not caught up on the latest episode, episode five of season eight, and you don't want any spoilers, come back in like 15 minutes. Okay, the, those are our spoiler warnings. If if, yeah. if you have seen the thing or you just don't care and you want to, then you're fine. But this will you, be you shouldn't care at this point. I'll yeah, you shouldn't care like at this point. It's... Like I'm just like blatantly going out and looking for spoilers about what's or leaks about what's going to happen. Well, that's not an exception, to be honest. Yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> I just like them in general, but I just I feel like this show has gone so downhill. But yes. anyway, um, yeah. so last episode, anyone who was going to get mad at me, I hope you're already gone now and no longer listening to this because I warned you. Um, Danny had this full Mad Queen moment. I say moment in the show. It was like two hours at least of like murder rampaging. It looked like of yeah. just burning down King's Landing, civilians, buildings, whatever, even after the city surrendered. And so it was a bad episode, which we'll get into. But what I thought was really interesting is that after the fact, a lot of feminists have actually been sad that Danny has turned into the series villain because they were like really rooting for her. There were a lot of Danny stamps who were like, oh my gosh, they, what? Shocking. Um, so we have this article, was it from, yeah, Stylist, that I, I want to read a quick pas passage from. Um, the It's called Game of Thrones Season 8 Has Failed All of Its Female Characters. And the author writes, the final season of the show has undone years of careful character development and reduced our complex and empowered female characters to, well, to mere shadows of their former selves, to foils for the show's male and therefore more important characters, to the worst kind of stereotypes. Case in point, the show's directors used a lack of makeup and a dodgy barnet, I don't know, to signpost Daenerys Targaryen's descent into madness rather than actual narrative. Of course, it's not just me who feels this way. Anyone who has been on social media will no doubt have noticed that a lot of people, Patricia Arquette included, believe that the final season of Game of Thrones has failed Amelia Clark's character. Why? Well, primarily because Daenerys has been strong-armed into the role of a bloodthirsty and emotionally manipulative maniac despite, despite previously being presented to the viewers as a just and kind ruler who is more than capable of compromise. 
We'll get to that later. Uh, yes, there's no denying that a terrible injustice has been done to Daenerys. We needed more time to understand her fall, fall from grace. More nuanced writing to demonstrate her descent into madness. Above all else, we need the show's writers to recognize that a woman's emotions are not indicative of weakness or malady of the mind. And that, yeah, Danny's hair wouldn't be braided quite as perfectly the morning after she watched her best friend die. Especially when said best friend was tasked with the job of doing Danny's braids each morning. And then we also have some, I think, humorous tweets that, that will show as well. These were making the rounds on Twitter. A lot of people were sharing and enjoying them. Um, this user says, I'm so effing mad right now. Game of Thrones has been a waste of my life. Gotta be white guys that ultimately saved the day after years of women killing it. F you, F you, F you. Women ultimately can't be trusted. Let me find out the writers are Trump supporters or Bernie supporters. Okay, Bernie supporters. Yeah, I don't what? Know. Where's uh, that coming they're from? They're deep in the rabbit hole. Yeah, uh, I'm literally crying right now because a decade of my life has been wasted on a show ultimately guided by white male viewpoint. All right, so I have well, a... <laughs> well done. Well then, um, so I just want to say that it's true. The writing of this season has been awful. People like these yes. these women who are complaining about bad writing. I'm not disagreeing with it. It's been really no, bad. For a while. But frankly, if you're only noticing the bad writing now, I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, I, I mean, really I think seven, eight, really bad. Six, also pretty dang bad. But not at like it's just yeah. whole like every since season five, it's just gotten worse and worse. And worse. And I say that as someone who loves the show. I really did. I really did. I think she gives them actually way too much credit here, especially when they're talking, when she's talking about how the makeup was indicative of yeah. Danny's breakdown. It's like they could not write that if they dreamed of it. Yeah, that was the makeup that's artist. Too much Trust depth. me. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's too, too much, much depth, depth for, them. for uh, you know, Dave and Dan. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not denying that the writing was awful. It absolutely was. However, um, <laughs> The writing was bad, not because Danny is now a villain. Danny has always been the villain, and they've been foreshadowing this for a very, very, very long yeah. time. Um, you can say that, you know, this final descent into madness where she goes full on murder rampage mode, that that was poorly done, which I think it, it, it was. It was brutally done. It was. Yeah. Um, but th the whole idea of Danny essentially being the mad queen or the villain. That's been foreshadowed since like literally season one. And I've, I've made a list that we're going to go through because I take this very seriously. Okay. Uh, season one, she burns the healer who had raped and who had been raped and had her village sacked by the Dothraki, right? Remember that she ended up um, causing Danny to have a miscarriage and Khal Drogo to kind of like be turned into a vegetable. But as she explained, it's because the Dothraki had what? raped her multiple times, everyone was dead, they'd really pillaged and plundered. And Danny was so, I guess, obsessed with herself as being this white savior that she didn't even, I mean, consider this other person suffering when she decided to trust her with the healing. Anyway, uh, she burned her alive. Regardless of what you think the healer should have done or should not have done, Danny burned someone alive. That's the takeaway here. All right. At the end of season one, during that same scene, she vows a painful death to anyone who disobeys her. This is not the the actions of someone who is well-adjusted or a born ruler, okay? Season two, when she's denied entry into Karth, she threatens everyone. This is a direct quote. When my dragons are grown, we will take back what was stolen from me and destroy those who have wronged me. We will lay waste to armies and burn cities to the ground. Yes, queen, slay, dragons, progressive. progressive. Yeah. Okay. When they won't, when people in Karth won't give her ships, she says she'll take what is hers with fire and blood. The end of like that story arc, she ends up locking people in a vault to die or suffocate or whatever and steals from them. Literally everything that happens in Marine is is a sign that she's just this like power hungry maniac. She wants to kill someone without a trial. She feeds her enemies to dragons. She crucifies people. Um, uh, okay, yeah, direct quote. They can live in my new world or they can die in their old one. Can you imagine John or Ned Stark saying that? Can you imagine John or Ned Stark saying? That? I can't. It's harder for Ned to say it, but yeah, exactly. But uh, yeah, she okay. Season I think it's six. She burns all the calls, right? She like it was like uh, at least a dozen of them. Um, 
her latest nude scene, if that's easier for male mm. viewers to recollect. Uh, yeah, she leaves Dario behind because it could hurt her quest for the throne. By the way, this just goes to show that even with John, she loves the throne more than anyone. Like all of these men in her life who've like loved her and supported her, she doesn't care. She wants power more than anything. Yeah, yeah. And oh yeah, she burns the Tarleys because they won't bend the knee to her, even though she is the one who is a foreign invader who has come with like a foreign army uh, to depose the ruler. The reason why I bring all of this up and probably alienate anyone who is not a, a Game of Thrones fan is because Daenerys has always had questionable morality, but it's just for the longest time, people were so caught up in the female empowerment, yes, Holy queen, crap. slay, that they didn't notice it. It's so heavy-handed, that stuff, too. Like yeah. this, this entire season, like the like the first few episodes, mm -hmm. like the female empowerment was so heavy-handed, so lacking in nuance. She was talking about how, like... Uh, deep and developed the characters are it was like the the most contrived stuff i like i almost attached my retina rolling my eye yeah you know yeah i know her and her and sansa she was trying to have this girl power girl talk moment with sansa <sighs> like we both know what it's Gosh. like right to be women it's like well you guys haven't had the same experience like at all i maybe. almost had to leave the room like that was so cringy yeah it's really yeah. so i don't know it's just like it's really interesting to me how these people could have held daenerys up to be this symbol of female empowerment when like have you not been paying attention she's been like quite the little murderess this whole scene, like, why, yep. what redeeming qualities, according to feminism, could she have possibly had? I don't understand. I mean, not to mention that she is, like, literally a, like, colonialist invader. And people say, oh, no, but she, it's because she wanted to free slaves. She didn't need to burn her enemies to free slaves, right? There are at least five times I could, could have, could think of where... She could have freed people without also burning other people. She didn't because she wanted to burn people. And if if she wanted to just free slaves, she could have just freed them with her armies and then left after people were liberated to let them rule themselves. But no, she wants the power. She wants to be the one who who is ruling. So no, she's just power hungry and wants to be feared. I've never liked this character. So no. I'm I'm happy that... I know in like George R. R. Martin's version of the story, she actually will probably have a much better developed and executed uh, total fall from grace. Do you think that it would? I, I don't know if, if she'd even fall from grace in the story, frankly. I, I mean, I, I think so the main. Different. I think the main points are probably the same. I I wouldn't even guess that they 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 left out entire plot lines. Yeah, but I mean, because I know they did make him tell them the ending before they actually. Like sign on because uh, they were worried even back maybe, then maybe that he, he wouldn't finish. I don't know if he even knows the answer though. That, that's <laughs> yeah, honestly the truth doesn't. of it. I don't think he knows how to write that yeah. book because at the end of the fifth book, I was like, okay, what happens now? Yeah, well, because like, I mean, I know something happened with George R. R. Martin and the showrunners. There was a little bit of falling out, and so yes. that he's not even involved in the show anymore, and he hasn't really, you know, been promoting it. I don't think or saying anything nice about it. But it's like, I agree that they suck, but at the same time, George you had more than enough time oh, yes. to have things done your own way to put forward your own ideas so it's like i don't know if you deserve to be upset what i did like seeing and you guys should check this out on youtube at some point after is just a compilation of like the actors reacting yeah to like this this recent season they're pretty disillusioned as well yeah and, and i just nice. i just want to say like i was watching um the behind the episodes kind of clip that hbo releases every week on their youtube channel to sort of give people like a behind the scenes look I'm very upset with this show right now. You can tell this is a lot of emotions for someone to have over a TV show. I don't blame the actors themselves. I think Amelia Clark has oh, done the best job possible. And even like there's so many other people involved with the show. They're doing so great. The cinematography is, is as good as it's ever been, if not better. The special effects are looking great. Costume, music scoring has been really good. Everything has been done. I, I thought it was really good. Uh, I thought it was all right. Well, anyway, greedy disagree, but like there are so many things that are being done really well in this season, um, but it's just like the writing. Well, what made Game of Thrones Game of Thrones was it wasn't it was, a Hollywood thing. Yeah. It wasn't like you didn't know. It was the writing that made it. Yeah, exactly. So like it's become a Michael Bay production almost. Yeah. So like not even I think Michael like this is worse. I, I'm serious. I yeah. do think this is this is worse. Um, I mean and. Maybe it just goes to show how good the show originally was that I could be so let yeah, down. Yeah, that's I think what it is. By it, yeah. But they could still save it. They could still save it because Sanus didn't really die on screen. <laughs> yeah, maybe. 
So what I'm waiting for is just in the last 30 seconds, he just gets on screen, cuts yeah. Daenerys down, and, and uh, yeah, reclaims his rightful, rightful throne. King. And yeah, well, by the way, to anyone say, oh, well, they couldn't, um, they couldn't really fully explore this because there was too much of a time constraint. The showrunners themselves imposed this time constraint. George Martin wanted at least 10 um, seasons, full 10 episodes each. HBO wanted that as well. Showrunners were like, nah, we got Star Wars money now. So yeah. there, no excuses. I hope they feel bad. Um, that's all I have to say about this for now. We'll see if we do another Game of Thrones segment after the finale this coming week. Um, but for now, I think we're going to be back in just a few seconds with our interview with Kaylin Robertson. Hey, Kaylin, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me and thank you for your amazing comments about the film so far. You were one of the first people to see it, but it was uh, it was so kind. Oh, no problem. I, I really enjoyed watching it. And social media censorship is something that I talk about all the time. Uh, if anyone watches this channel a lot, you'll know. And it's frustrating because I feel like since this problem affects mainly independent media figures, it's kind of up to independent media to talk about it because this sort of thing doesn't get covered on things like CNN or even Fox News as much as I think it should, which is why I think your film is so important. Um, so you are the producer of the new film, You Can't Watch This, which is a documentary that was just released today. If anyone hasn't seen it yet, they can go over to youcantwatchthis.com. It focuses on the issue of social media censorship. And in the film, you you guys interview people like Alex Jones, Laura Loomer, Paul Joseph Watson, Tommy Robinson, and Gavin McInnes, who have all in their own way been affected by online censorship. And this is an issue that I talk about a lot on my channel, like a lot, a lot. It's a passion of mine and something that I encounter all the time from people when I address these issues is the, the argument that, oh, well, private company, what are you going to do? So what would you say to people who are looking at your your film, your documentary, and looking at the people who have been booted off the, this or that platform and who are saying, well, yeah, maybe it sucks for them, but at the end of the day, Facebook, Twitter, they can do whatever they want because they're a private company. What would you say to people like that? So one of the biggest ar arguments is, well, they're private companies. Every time you watch CNN or Fox News or, well, not Fox or, or any sort of left-wing media, the first thing they say is, they're private companies. They can do whatever they want. Well, they are private companies, but they're behaving like publishers. I mean, you made this argument um, in your in your uh, re review of the of You Can't Watch This, and uh, it, was, it was perfectly correct. They are not just giving a platform to people to to uh, speak however they want they're they're curating content they're saying uh we want to elevate this point of view we don't want to elevate that point of view uh and that's how they're acting and they don't have to face any of the same sanctions or any of the same responsibilities that other publishers in america and, and across the world have to face uh yet they are you know taking all the rewards from it so so it's not really the same uh the the same sort of argument and uh, the, the 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 other part of it as well is that um you can't exist uh, without social media now. I mean, our entire culture, our entire lives, everything revolves around social media. You know, you can't be a journalist, you can't be uh, working in media without uh, your portfolio being online. I mean, that's what that's what employers look for, especially in the UK. You know, seventy percent of employers Google you before you before you get a job. And so, the point that Laura Loomer makes in the movie is um, that she's completely gone. I mean, she, she can never work in the mainstream media again. She can never work in, in the industry again. And that's, that's, that goes beyond the whole private company thing. You know, you know, at least with private companies, you still have in a capitalist society, you still have options, you still have choices, you still have differences in consumers. But um, with, with mainstream, uh, with, with social media, you only have two or three conglomerate massive companies that run the whole thing. And so, I mean, the only solution to that is probably to to break them up, or to or to even start regulating it, or to put more pressure on these companies. But it uh, it's it's not just as easy as saying, well, you know, they're a private company, so they can't uh, they can do what they want. Right, and I find the next issue that I often encounter with people when I'm talking to them about social media censorship is almost it's it's an apathy, right? Because even if we can get someone to acknowledge that yes, right wing or conservative leaning people or even just anti-establishment people are being unfairly targeted by these platforms, that's not a conspiracy theory, that's just fact at this point, even if we can get them to see that, and even if they are people who 
morally think that deplatforming is bad and who, regardless of whether they you know, like them or agree with them or not, aren't going to cheer when someone like Loomer, Laura Loomer gets kicked off a platform, the, the next hurdle challenge is getting them to understand why it's so important, right? Because I feel like a lot of people who especially don't keep up with independent media, when they hear about things like social media bans, I think their, their first impression is like, oh, well, that's too bad. I guess you just won't be able to post your selfies anymore. I guess you just will have to take your, your little YouTube videos elsewhere. What your film does a great job of addressing is the fact that this isn't just, um, you know, who can say happy birthday to you on Facebook. This is actually an issue that may end up affecting elections in the future because, you know, these companies, by controlling what people can and cannot post, they're in essence controlling what people can or cannot know. Would you mind explaining to us um, what kind of effects this might be having in the near future, specifically the 2020 election, if things don't change? One of the most uh, common past office conspiracy theory arguments is that is that this has been done to sway the 2020 election and that it's heating up towards the 2020 election. I mean, the internet looked massively different in 2016 and 2017 as it does now, and it's only been you know a couple of years. Um, I think you know a lot of people say that this is happening because a lot of the left want to see, never want to see Trump in the White House again, never want to see politics and populist politics ever arise again. So. Uh, the fact that young people aren't really looking at CNN anymore, they aren't really looking at uh, mainstream media anymore, they're getting all their information from much smaller sources online and alternative news news, news outlets means that uh, people need to, to, to survive as a mainstream media conglomerate. You need to clamp down on all dissident alternative voices and why it matters, not just for the right, but why it matters if you care about anything uh, to do with democracy is, 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 is understanding that it's not just gonna happen to the right in the next few years, it's gonna happen to everybody who's anti-establishment, anyone who criticizes people in power, anyone who criticizes you know, the government, anyone who criticizes probably large corporations as well will be wiped off the internet. And that's because it's been allowed to happen. I mean, the only people who have been speaking out against this have been the right, have been not just the mainstream, but sort of even the, mainly just the dissident right mm -hmm. uh, and alternative media outlets. And that's that's a, a massive, massive problem. I mean, it is going to start happening more to the left. You know, there was a network called the Anti-Media uh, Channel, which had 1.2 million followers on Facebook, very left-wing, very anti-establishment, quite Marxist socialist. They were wiped off the internet only a few months ago uh, for criticizing, I don't know, some Israel-Palestine thing, but their entire social media was wiped off the internet and they had no way of, uh, of talking about it. And uh, it starts with them, it starts with the right, and it's going to happen to, to everyone. The internet's going to be a very sterile, boring place in the next few years. Mm -hmm. And actually, one of the figures who first had this happen to them, and I think a lot of people who are concerned now maybe wish they'd done more to speak up at the time, was Alex Jones, someone who you actually interview in your film. And he's someone, I, I mean, frankly, I don't really, I don't watch his stuff. I'm a fan of Paul Joseph Watson's things, but I'm not this avid InfoWars watcher. But I remember when he was... It was during that coordinated attack thing. He was booted off of, I think, Spotify and iTunes and uh, YouTube was either at the same time or not uh, not long before or after that. Uh, I, I tweeted that this was wrong and that I was really shocked that no one was really making a fuss about it or pushing back in mainstream or even alternative media. And I had so many people who I would have ordinarily considered free speech advocates uh, who thought that dialogue was a good thing, actually cheering for his deplatforming. It seems like Alex Jones is one of those people who, um, I guess we we have agreed as a society shouldn't have the same, um, I don't know, privileges, rights, courtesy that everyone else has. There are a lot of people who don't like him, uh, even on the right. You guys actually took the time to talk to him. As a filmmaker, would you mind kind of taking us through that decision to actually speak to him because there are a lot of people who even if they're interested in this film maybe might think oh alex jones like how could you i mean even joe rogan was vilified just for talking to him he's been i mean he's been made into a very toxic figure right now yeah well no that's a really good question one of the main points of the film isn't actually to go into why someone was banned or right. or whether they should or shouldn't have been banned or, or the or the fine you know reasons for specifically whether they should or shouldn't be allowed a platform it's it's just the effects of what happens to a human being or to a company when it's wiped off the internet uh, because we could you know you could, if, if you wanted to make a documentary about why or, or or if or or you know the justification it would, it would be six or seven hours long as a <laughs> filmmaker we did it because we wanted to tell his story and and tell the other stories which aren't being told i mean the only way you can hear about alex jones now or paul joseph watson or any of these people really is through mainstream media because those are the only platforms which 
which which basically exist left on the internet that that are allowed to speak about those people. So, you, you know, the public are going to form an opinion based on that and not of the not of his not of, not of his own image. So, as a filmmaker, storytelling is like one of the most important things to me. It's been something that that I've always you know done since I was much younger, and this is the perfect story to tell because it's a story that's been silenced and suppressed for so long. And Alex as well, he's very you know, he's very loud, he's very proud, very boisterous. And and the purpose of this movie, and it's the same with Gavin, was to peel all of that back and just understand them as people and to humanize them as well and to and to really take away all of the politics, take away all of the arguments, take away all of the MAGA and we're winning and just see who they are and how it feels as a human being to be unpersoned and to be wiped off the internet. Because the only way people can understand change, the only, one, the only way people can actually understand ideas and concepts, a lot of the ways, you know, humans are very emotional beings, is to do so on an emotional level. And I think this is one of the, the best ways to actually convey a message is, is to use emotion and to use human emotion. Um, and, 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 you know, we, we as a filmmaker as well, documentaries are one of the most important ways to change culture. I mean, look what Super Size Me did to the fast food industry or what Blackfish did to the sea life industry or what Michael Moore does to, to politics. Documentaries more than movies, more than news, change politics more than anything. And so that's why we went down this avenue because uh, I think I think something like this, this movie will outlive so many of the news reports that outlive so many of the of the tweets and the and the current opinions about Alex and, and he'll be solidified and that that sort of opinion and that sort of um that framing will will be something that will last forever. Mm, I think that's such a good point. And that's actually something that I was really struck by when watching the film is that, you know, you you have these scenes of I mean, all of them, Alex Jones, Laura Loomer, just kind of talking about how their everyday day-to-day -day lives have been affected. And I think because we live in the age of almost uh, obsession with celebrity as well as really um, divisive politics, we kind of see these, these people as just these only their political opinions, right? You are no longer a person anymore. Not just I disagree with you, but you, you don't deserve any of the common courtesies, whatever. You are just like an entity of bad ideas and so anything that i would like to do to your ideas i can do to you personally and feel just about justified by it and i think it's very very scary but something that stood out to me in the documentary as well is the whole situation surrounding tommy robinson because the other figures i think haven't had as much pushback from the state the actual government that tommy robinson has and there's this one really really concerning clip in the film where it's uh someone from the uk government is it, it looks like they're in the equivalent of a hearing or like congressional ones that they do in the states where they're talking to some a representative from youtube and they're asking youtube why tommy robinson videos are being recommended and anyone who doesn't get chills down their spine at, at the idea of government kind of labeling someone's opinions apparently not worthy of being recommended and going to a private company and saying hey change this i think it should be concerned uh for people who are maybe canadian or american and who don't who, who aren't familiar with what's going on in the uk what has the pushback against free speech been from the government itself right because you know this issue it's bigger than just twitter and facebook if you're someone who's british you actually have to contend with your own government as well so um so we don't have the First Amendment in the UK, so it's very different to to the US, and, and people here don't expect uh, a free speech, free speech society. This is the same as across the water, but uh, it's still far, far, far worse. I think we have six people arrested every single day in the UK for insightful or inflammatory or, quote, uh, racist or hateful tweets. So we have a massive amount of uh, police involvement in, in what people can post online. People here aren't surprised by censorship. If someone got banned off the entirety of social media, nowhere outside Breitbart UK would really be posting about it. People are pretty much punch drunk to it because it's been like this for so long in this country. Um, but Tommy specifically has has been on the receiving end of of a massive amount of censorship. I mean, I mean, we I, I worked with him for for quite a while. Obviously, he was arrested uh, last year for reporting on a court case. Uh, when he was banned off social media, the right, the left wing, and the mainstream press here congratulated it more than when anyone got banned in the U.S. as well. It was it was absolutely crazy, and um, the the standards aren't applied to anybody else in this country. I mean, the Labour Party has a massive problem with anti-Semitism and massive numbers of labor, of Labour MPs. This is the second biggest party in Britain have uh, posted horrendously anti-Semitic uh, content on the internet without any repercussions 
literally, you know, joking about gassing, gassing Jews and um, and and congratulating the Holocaust, and they 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 haven't had any uh, major repercussions. So so it's not even that it's bad; it's that it's not applied evenly. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's 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 very very different here. Yeah, and that's something the the lack of equal enforcement, um, you know, whether it's by governments or even these platforms themselves. That's something that I also like to draw attention to as well, because I mean, when in the case of Tommy specifically, um, I, I hear people all the time say that, you know, he's trying to start a race war, that he's called for the beheading of Muslim people and all these types of things, which I, I've had the pleasure of interviewing Tommy before I'm, I follow his work and things like that. I have yet to hear him say anything of the sort. But I mean, it, it doesn't seem like anyone's being pressed when they make these claims to have any any type of proof, which is insane, because I know for a fact that if anyone on the right, especially anyone who was popular, was actually saying those things, you know, there would be footage of them on loop, nonstop on CNN saying that so that everybody could see how awful they are. Um, When it comes to these online platforms, though, we have people like Sarah Jong, uh, who was saying blatantly anti-white things, we can kind of argue whether that was humor or not, perhaps it was, but I mean, it's kind of irrelevant because if it even if it had been had she been a right-wing person saying it 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 really wouldn't have mattered so i mean you've kind of mentioned things like well uh maybe regulation or 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 breaking up these big tech companies but even if changes are made in the states to how twitter is run as a company we've seen that when it comes to europe uh, european governments aren't really afraid of saying hey if you want to operate in our countries then a different set of rules needs to apply. Do you think that because of the way that free speech is viewed in places like the UK or even Germany, outside of the Anglosphere, that even if changes happen that affect American users or users based in the US and Canada, that that wouldn't necessarily carry over to British users? Yeah, no, no, it, it wouldn't really affect much here. I mean, I mean, Britain is so far gone with its with its censorship and with its freedom of speech laws that I think anything that would happen outside of the country would would still really have no effect on it. It would it would just be brought up in the press here as, oh my goodness, this is happening abroad, and we should work harder to not be like that. I mean, Trump uh, is coming to the UK in a few weeks, and the uh, what some of uh, the leader of the opposition party in Britain is refusing to dine with him, is is refusing to be in London at the same time. We had uh, something like 40 MPs host a meeting inside the House of Lords to debate whether he should be allowed in the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so things are so 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 different politically here compared to America, people don't seem to realize it. You know, we, we speak the same language, but that doesn't mean, you know, you know, people have this false sense of security that it's just a little bit culturally different. But uh, there's there's absolutely no hope for this country in terms of censorship. I mean, there really isn't. It's uh, totally, totally gone. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's really unfortunate to hear, but I, I, unfortunately, I think you're probably largely right. But for people who want to be able to do something, who see this film and are moved to action to do something, what do you think is the most productive outlet that those people can take to at least try to affect some sort of change, whether it's, you know, for the UK government, for Tommy specifically, social media censorship in general. I think there are so many people who are upset by these issues and who feel like their views are being stifled, but they aren't as sure as confident about what they can do next about it. And that's something that I struggle with as well, right? Because I have, you know, I have a podcast, I have a channel, I can complain about it, but what else can I do to complain kind of thing? Yeah, and on top of that, the views of the right are dropping at the moment as well. Things people are people are losing their energy. People are feeling depressed. People are feeling hopeless. People are you know the energy from the election is all gone. People are feeling like like there's just no point anymore. Right. Like it's just gonna it's it's just gonna happen. And people have become punch drunk to it. That's something that Harrison Smith said in the documentary. And it's not um, it's 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 so sad uh, because genuine Americans and, and British people just feel like as individuals, there's nothing they can do to to change anything. I mean, in, in ways there absolutely is, you know, if, if we gather a lot of energy and momentum again, people can be sharing more content, they can be going to alternative media sites, and they can be having more of a presence there, having more of a presence online and having more of a presence in engaging with videos and, and watching movies like the one we just made that that will definitely ignite a new sort of wave of, of just energy. Um, but um, I understand as well why people are feeling let down and why people are are feeling sad because it's it's a very very difficult time and things have changed so quickly that uh, I think people are are just scared and I don't know I don't really have all the solutions to that it's it's uh, it's a very you know it's a very sad situation this is what the movie explores the movie is not a 
we're winning, MAGA, mm-hmm. you know, we're gonna we're gonna win. It's it's scary, it's sad, it's it's worrying and um and sometimes we don't always have have you know, have the right answers. Yeah, and that's something that I mean I kind I, I really enjoyed the film, but at the same time it's one of those ones that doesn't leave you with a very big sense of of optimism i think it's you know it's just you portray just very frankly the situation that these people are in right now the situation that tommy's in that laura loomer's in um that gavin is in it's it's really hard to uh kind of see how these people's lives have been changed how their income levels have been affected um and and kind of come away with maybe perhaps righteous indignation which i think would be the most productive emotion we could leave with but you know without a feeling of oh wow like these people, they really have done it. Like they've they've won in this at least for now. And what was so frustrating to me personally is that you know when it comes to figures like Tommy Robinson and Gavin McInnes, who can almost seem larger than life, uh, we I personally at least like to think of them like as oh d- don't worry, like they're hanging in there, like they're gonna figure something out, et cetera, et cetera. But to see them as in, in sort of more vulnerable moments, it's almost like wait, no, you're supposed to be the strong one, you're supposed to be the impervious one. Um, but of course, like it. I don't know how anyone could go through what these people have been through and not, I mean, be left off in some sort of worse off state emotionally, uh, financially, in terms of their work, et cetera, et cetera. So I uh, thank you so much for coming on, sharing your insights. You can't watch this.com is how they can, uh, can find the film. Is there anywhere else that they should be following you on or uh, keeping tabs of your work? Well, we're still on social media. So if you type in, you can't watch this into YouTube, you can't watch this into Twitter it'll pretty much be the first result. So just have a look on there and and we'll be posting loads of behind the scenes clips, extended clips, deleted scenes. There'll be loads of stuff that we'll be posting over the next few, uh, you know, because there's seven hours of interview footage. So we want to, we want to actually put more out so people can, people can see, you know, more. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. And again, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So that's it for our show tonight. Thank you guys so much for watching. And for anyone who's tuned in live, be sure to stay on this stream because we're going to be back in just a few seconds with some exclusive Q&A. But aside from that, I'll see you guys next time.